Welcome to Shared Insights, the podcast from BA Insight. My name is Pete Wright, and I am joined today by our CTO, Jeff Freed. Hello, Jeff. Hello again, Pete. Always delightful to talk to you. Absolutely, sir. Now, recently on the show, Jeff, you walked us through your perspective on the state of search. And in that conversation, cognitive search came up a number of times as an area that defines the next great wave of coming innovation in the search space. So today on the show, we have two fantastic guests with us to help us better understand what is going on in this area. Hadley Reynolds and Sue Feldman are co-founders and managing directors at the Cognitive Computing Consortium. They are both eminent analysts deeply versed in search, and we're thrilled to have them with us today. Hadley and Sue, welcome to Shared Insights. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here, Pete. Sue, let's let's start with you. For listeners who are unfamiliar with it, uh, can you give us a little bit of background? What is cognitive computing, and why is it important for us to understand this? Sure. I think it is really the next generation of where uh, computers have, are about to go. Uh, those of us in the search world have been, been predicting this for a very, very long time. Uh, because unlike most of the business applications, um, search is probabilistic. In other words, you're going to get the best match, but you're not going to get the only match. So um, what we see now is a wave of new technology um, and all of these technologies are coming together, and that's certainly a part of, of uh, cognitive computing. Um, the Internet of Things, BI, and data analytics, and human-computer interaction, and cognitive studies, and search, and text analytics, and AI. Um, pieces of those are all contributing to cognitive computing. Now, um, the reason that we are interested in this and why we in the search world have been so impatient and I believe ahead of the curve for so long is that we can make a new class of problems computable and these tend to be very human problems. And if you think about all of the decisions that you make every day, it's rare that there is just one right answer. There are a series of answers which are contextually uh, more appropriate or less appropriate, depending on your mood, where you are, what your resources are, etc. But there are a lot of parameters that go into your making a decision, and nothing is certain. So this new class of, of problems that we're just beginning to uh, create applications for are very ambiguous, very unpredictable in uh, their outcomes and in their data. The situation shifts a lot. There's often conflicting data. This is familiar to all of us who live in the real world. Um, there's often voluminous uh, data from multiple sources. Uh, they require exploration rather than an answer. They require iteration and discussion. And there's very often the need to uncover patterns and relationships and especially surprises. So that question of what should I know that I didn't think to ask for is paramount in many of these situations. The best answers are based on the context of who you are and what you're doing and where you are at the time. And these applications above all are aimed at problem solving. So as I said, a bunch of us have been very, very impatient uh, to see this new generation finally arrive. Uh, 
And in 2014, and Jeff was among those of us arguing about this, we spent several months deciding what a cognitive application, what a cognitive platform ought to look like. We boiled it down at a very high level to uh, what we call cognitive computing pillars. The first is that these systems are all adaptive. They learn, they reason, they infer, they recommend. The second is that they're probabilistic. They deliver confidence-scored results, but they are rarely going to deliver the one answer based on your query. They are contextual. They filter the results based on the who, what, where, when, why of who of your, you and your situation and your task. They are conversational. They're language-based. This is another reason why search people and text analytics people are the ones who understand this in their guts, if you will. Uh, they are interactive, they're iterative, and they are stateful. So just as you will have a conversation with someone else, and that person, one hopes, will remember what you said before so that you can refer to it rather than having to go through it again. And unlike search, which is not stateful as a general case, uh, you are able to have a continuing discussion with the system. And finally, they are highly integrated. The data is integrated and the technology is integrated. That's what we said in 2014, and I don't think I would depart from it now. I'm not sure what Hadley and, and uh, Jeff will say about that, but I'm still sticking to it. Well, Hadley, let's turn to you then, if, if you would like to pivot off, off of that conversation. And, and uh, sir, I would love to hear uh, a little bit of background on the Cognitive Computing Consortium. What is the consortium, and, and uh, uh, what, do you, uh, what do you serve? Yeah, thanks, Pete. Um, it's a pretty easy pivot from what Sue was just saying, um, because we had uh, gathered together a working group in 2014 of about 15 to 20 uh, professionals representing the academy, representing uh, software vendors, representing end user companies, uh, and um, representing thought leaders in the, in the search area to create the definition that Sue described for you. And um, after we, uh, you can imagine it was quite a lively conversation for a couple of months while we were drafting the definition. And out of that experience, I think um, it reinforced for both of us, uh, Sue and myself, that is, um, the need in the field to have an ongoing kind of a resource for people to uh, get their heads together, so to speak, and discuss some of the critical uh, issues that are facing the field. And there are many today as we go through a you know, paradigm shift, uh, sorry to use the outmoded term, but we're literally looking at a paradigm shift in the way computing is both developed and experienced by the people that use computers. So um, we've, uh, in about a year ago now, just a little bit over a year, we formally introduced the Cognitive Computing Consortium. And the, the fundamental uh, mission, I guess you would say, of the consortium is to provide an independent association of professionals who are working in the areas of cognitive computing and AI, and um, who are interested in having a, a neutral um, place where they can access uh, resources that include original research that are created by the consortium itself, where they can collaborate uh, 
amongst each other where they can attend uh, educational programs like uh, webinars and workshops that we produce for, uh, uh, you know, to broadly educate um, both business users in the marketplace in general on, on the issues of cognitive and AI. And um, also uh, provide at least once a year an opportunity for people to get together in a conference format and um, be able to collaborate in that vein and also listen to uh, thought leaders in the industry talk about uh, uh, the kinds of struggles they're dealing with in the present tense and uh, where they see the industry growing in the future tense. So the consortium uh, has both individual memberships and um, corporate memberships and individuals can sign up simply by clicking on some buttons on the Cognitive Computing Consortium website, which is unfortunately the lengthy cognitivecomputingconsortium.com URL and uh, fill out an application form and, and our um, membership committee uh, screens all the applications and lets people know whether they can uh, become a member or not. I, one thing I didn't mention about the consortium is that we did want to make this a, a forum for professionals and uh, not for students or for people who really don't have any direct experience in the field. The idea was to provide, as most professional associations do, provide a sort of a professional body of knowledge that people would be working from. And uh, we expect people to be familiar with that body of knowledge uh, in order to be members. So I could go on and on about um, what we do, which includes research programs and developing educational materials we publish through a blog and through articles in the trade press. Uh, through speaking at, at events and uh, through providing uh, an ongoing collaboration forum on our CognitiveComputingConsortium.com website. But I think I'll leave it at that for now, and uh, we can address other questions about the consortium itself maybe later as they come up. Yeah, I'll just contribute as a, as a plug, if you will. I'm a big fan of the consortium, and part of it is that in, right now I'm starting to see a lot of our customers at BA Insight sort of opening up their eyes and going, oh, what is this stuff? And there is so much hype and so much confusion as various vendors try to get an edge in marketing that um, I think having a trusted place to turn to that has, you know, real, some real depth is invaluable. It looks like a fantastic resource, and we will, of course, put all of the, the appropriate links uh, in the show notes. So uh, as you're listening along, swipe over to your show notes in your podcast app there, and, and uh, you can tap right over to uh, the uh, consortium's website and, and join, hopefully. Uh, Jeff, let's, let's turn back to you. This, this podcast, we want to focus uh, on search. Uh, how does cognitive computing relate to search? Can you set up this conversation for us? Uh, sure, and I will then... Uh pull in Sue and Hadley, who I uh, think are both wiser and smarter than I am. As Sue said, a lot of this sort of cognitive elements came from a natural language process and search background. And in the search field, there's a lot of rhetoric about this being the new wave. Gartner has coined the term insight engines and includes AI and natural language processing among their criteria for inclusion of in their magic quadrant 
Forrester two weeks ago came out with a wave for a new category that they've called Cognitive Search and Knowledge Discovery Solutions. And Sue and Hadley have both been search analysts at other organizations. So I, I'll let you chime in, but I, I think that this is very related to search, whether you view it as fundamentally a similar thing with a new name or whether you view it as a very new approach to similar problems. Yeah. Uh, remember that especially the, the first cognitive application that anybody knows about, Watson from IBM, was built on a search backbone. And that's because you need to handle the data in a fundamentally different way from the way you would in a business intelligence application. Because what you're doing in search is real-time interaction with data. You've built an index for sure. But the fact is that when your query comes in, in, in classic search, then you're going to, in real time, be able to interact with, uh, ideally, an index which is up to the minute, and that will return to you not just an exact match, but also some inexact matches in which not all the parameters of your query are met. Now, over the years, and I've been in search for longer than I want to admit to, uh, what we did was to add a number of linguistic characteristics to search to allow us to enlarge um, the query so that, for instance, if you ask for blue, you might get aqua and you might get navy, as an example. And that's a good thing because who knows what words we're going to use. Language is rich and, and unpredictable in so many ways. And we also built into search the understanding of how language works. So the fact that entities, you know, the, the people, places, and things uh, of a conversation can be locked down, but also that you'll have the variance of um, Framingham versus Boston area, for instance, as possible um, similar, but not exactly the same um, ideas. All of those helped us to make search more intelligent, uh, to make it more interactive, to make it broader. And there were even in the 90s uh, attempts to make it stateful. So any of the online systems like LexisNexis or Dialog, for instance, try very hard to remember what it was that you asked for and to use those early queries as perhaps filters. Uh, so they were clunky, um, they weren't used very much, but people understood. Now, let, let's um, move to this new generation. We now have robust technologies. We have more knowledge about how people interact with systems. Uh, we have um, cloud uh, capabilities, which means we can put more stuff in the cloud. All of those are taking the early dreams and turning them into uh, what the search and text analytics people were imagining in the 90s and even the 80s. Yeah, two thoughts on that. Um, one, or two comments. One is that your book, Sue, called The Answer Machine, which came out now five years ago, is a great reference for those that want to 
make the kind of connections you were just talking about. So I, thank you. I, I, I uh, really enjoy it. The other is you mentioned that Watson is built on a search backbone. And, and certainly if, if I were on Jeopardy, I would want to have access to a search engine. Sometimes I've wondered if they'd given the other human Jeopardy contestants access to Google, whether Watson would have won or not. Interesting question. I have no idea. What a great idea. Rematch. Rematch. There you go. Uh, Hadley, uh, what's, what's your perspective on sort of how this is folding out and, you know, are there camps or are there trends that you see? Well, yes, I think there's some, um, there's sort of long wave, there's a long wave answer to this and there's a short wave answer to this, if I can um, use a kind of a strange metaphor. In the long wave, I think that the consumerization of search in general started really with uh, the rise of internet search engines, you know, going way back to the original Yahoo and, and InfoSeq and so forth, but um, really taking off with the um, amazing market acceptance of Google as Google got better and better at providing instant answers. Uh, um, that completely changed the expectations of people, you know, everyday people and also business people who were trying to create better search for their companies. And with that change of expectations, um, came a whole new sort of way of looking at the market and a whole new set of pressures on on search technology providers. And um, at the same time, uh, somewhat coincidentally, we were going through a generational change in the technology leadership among search software vendors in which uh, we, we got a big three with, so to speak, with autonomy, fast, and uh, uh, some other players that were dom dominating what used to be called the enterprise search market. But the enterprise search market, unfortunately, wasn't making people happy. And uh, while this is happening, everybody really is happy with Google. In fact, the third big player in the enterprise search market turned out to be the Google search appliance, which was actually just as bad as products from Autonomy and Fast and others, but had the word Google on it. And uh, they were able to uh, leverage their brand into a dominant market position, which um, uh, which brought us up to about a, three years ago, three or four years ago. Um, and basically all of these companies were either acquired or uh, spun off or integrated into other technology portfolios and, um, you know, sort of the wave of companies that were leading from 1995 to 2010, so to speak, disappeared. So now I think um, as a part of that uh, generational change, the market research firms that you mentioned before, Gartner, Forrester, IDC, et cetera, 451 Group, you know, there are many, um, realized that they couldn't keep talking about enterprise search because the players that they were essentially selling their analysis to, um, at least on the vendor side, were no longer there almost. I mean, they almost literally had disappeared at this point. And um, by 2011, Watson and uh, IBM had introduced the Jeopardy playing Watson that sort of raised uh, expectations on the enterprise side in roughly the same way that the success of the Google search engine of the web had raised uh, expectations on the consumer side. So now suddenly uh, what lies behind the hype 
cycle problem is that IBM relentlessly marketed this idea of a cognitive compute. You know, they coined the phrase cognitive computing. They rel relentlessly marketed the idea that Watson could be made to play in your company, and you could see it every time you watch a the Olympics or every time you watch the World Series or if you watch golfing events um, or tennis tournaments, you'd see how uh, how Watson could go to work in your company. You were absolutely right to uh, point to the hype cycle problem, Jeff, earlier, because uh, I neglected to mention that in forming the consortium, one of, the, one of our very top objectives was to try to puncture some of the hype that was going on in the, in the marketplace. I think it's important to recognize that uh, when Sue started out talking about the cognitive systems being probabilistic, it pointed to what one of the major trends is today, and that is the integration of new approaches to machine learning uh, into both search systems and all kinds of other cognitive applications. I mean, machine learning has been around for, what, 40 years, something along those lines. but. Um, for various reasons, uh, prominent among them being uh, lack of computing power. Uh, machine learning could not become a, an everyday commodity. But today, uh, because compute power itself is an everyday commodity, people have been able to make advances in approaches to machine learning, accommodate a wider variety of types of machine learning algorithms, introduce solutions to problems like deep learning, which were always beyond the range of anything but the biggest supercomputers, running for days and um, so now we have what we would call cognitive search products today from companies you know from the current generation of search companies um, using uh, machine learning kinds of approaches to to search in any way they can within their product lines so that's an important uh, shift i think in the delivery of search is the extent to which machine learning is becoming part of the overall package yeah i, I certainly um live that Myself, so I mean, I've touched on this in in previous episodes, uh, but as part of what I call my evil master plan, B Insight is certainly doing a lot of that incorporation of machine learning. We did our first foray about a year ago, but the ability to work on different search engines and different fabrics, like we do with Microsoft or Elasticsearch or working off of Hadoop is, has proven to be a, a, a good thing for this wave. And my scheme is basically to leverage the software superpowers um, and, and use sort of our modular approach to bring in the best machine learning and cognitive components out there by tapping sort of what I'll call the arms race, certainly Google and Microsoft that we're very close to but also Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and of course, IBM are investing billions in this area and it's moving really fast. So Hadley, you mentioned um, Google changing the expectation of users really from the consumer space into the business space. Do you think that that has happened with Siri and Alexa? No. 
It will. It will have the impacts here in Alexa and Cortana potentially and other kinds of uh, voice interaction systems are inevitably going to be part of the scene um, as we look into the future here. The quality of voice recognition is still a little bit fuzzy for an enterprise application that um, really requires, I would say in general, requires a level of accuracy that is beyond what what uh, many consumer applications can get away with. In other words, if you ask Siri what the weather is and she, you know, stutters a little bit and asks you to repeat yourself, did you mean it for where you are right now or did do you mean it for the place that you're going because I can see that you're driving in your car and which one did you want me to do? So if there's some confusion on Siri's part, it's not life or death on, or anything. But if you're a for example, IBM in um, trying to extend the business model of Watson or create the business model of Watson, I should say, has targeted healthcare. And there are almost no decisions that uh, you're going to make in healthcare where you'd want a sort of a sloppy interaction with a with a spoken word uh, inter device. So um, I do think that it's going to take a while for the. Uh, again, this is a is a a place where deep learning, particularly in Places like Google Translate and, and Google Voice Recognition Technologies has been utilized to sharpen the, the ability to uh, track uh, human utterances, you know, in multiple languages. And so that's already improved significantly and it'll continue to improve. But I think that the very fact that the, um, the Google created this wonderful, simple, metaphor for search, which is this blank blank screen with a with a single search box. What was so successful in that, what I will call the last generation of search, is going to be obsolete because people actually don't want to be typing, even if it's a simple thing in one line in the middle of a screen, people really don't want to be typing at computers in order to get answers and, and go about their lives. They'd much rather have a conversational interface, which is um, why we've, we've uh, at the consortium, wove that element into the, the very definition of what cognitive computing is. Yeah, I, I hear a rhetoric. I mean, certainly Microsoft talks about conversation as a platform, and Google talks about conversation as the new UI. I see a lot of sort of baby steps towards use of machine learning in this area. The off Microsoft Office graph um, is a great example where there really is learning going on, but in a very controlled domain. What's a favorite application that you've seen from the consortium for cognitive computing? I'll, I'll let you pick one each, uh, starting with Sue, then Hadley. I guess the my, most mind-blowing thing I have seen is a cognitive application for the blind in which you have combined so many technologies, vision, conversation, facial recognition, uh, certainly voice recognition, uh, on and on. And here's what it does. It allows a blind person to walk from her office across a perhaps not fully known or explored um, area, uh, in and out of doors. So you've got this predictive nature of understanding what a space looks like. Uh, this, this is probably a window. This is probably a door. This is probably the safest way for you to navigate through this room that has furniture in it, and I am going to guide you. Um, this is a step up. This is a step down. All of those things need to be generalized and are part of the knowledge base because 
Otherwise, you're confined to the same 10 rooms that have been mapped. So the, the example I saw uh, was a person walking across a campus uh, to buy some cookies. Um, they walked in and out of doors. They, they met friends. The friends' faces were recognized. The app whispered in their ear and said, that's great. He's looking happy. And the person holding the, the iPhone, because it was an iPhone app, uh, said, Greg, you're looking happy. What's going on? How cool is that? And then, of course, they went to the, the cafeteria. Um, it asked them what they wanted to buy. She said, I want cookies. Um, it, the app said, according to your, and that, this part I don't like, um, according to your most recent data, you've gained five pounds this week. Are you sure you want cookies? She said, yes. Um, and it took her over. Um, it allowed her to use the QR codes on the cookie packages to tell her that this is peanut butter and this one is chocolate chip. Navigated her way up to the cashier and allowed her to pay. Wow. To me, this is just mind clutching and heart clutching. And that's, you know, cognitive a cognitive application at its best. I'm not, I can't follow with anything uh, more dramatic or impressive than uh, what Sue's just described. But I think uh, one area I would point to that's getting a lot of attention is the uh, customer support area, the, the general idea of having some kind of virtual agent, which of course, from the point of view of the company uh, who's trying to support its customers, they are trying to deflect, as we all know, um, to our great pain, they're trying to deflect customer support questions away from human beings and toward machines, whether that be um, voice IVR systems that shunt you through large menus and um, offer to send you a PDF of a file or something, or uh, you know various other techniques to try to offload uh, human beings because the as kind of, they sell more and more products and products get more and more complex, they get more and more calls. And so the growth of customer support requests, um, they, can't, they don't want to keep up with the growth of requests by hiring more headcount. So there's been a tremendous amount of interest in having Siri-like or even not in the voice realm, imagine Siri who could type, you know, having a chat session with a Siri. Uh, configuring support answers to support questions so that uh, so that people, the customers feel that they're being supported appropriately, uh, wisely, and promptly, and the company feels like it's saving money. Any particular company has a relatively tight domain of products. We were talking about the issue before uh, within machine learning and, uh, for example, um, and knowledge graphs in general, is that the more specific you can get about a specific domain, the higher the quality of the answers that you can give, and also probably the more accurately you can understand the questions that the customers will be bringing. Yeah, absolutely. I visited a friend that's at a startup that does question answering for customer, customer support, and they are accurate enough to really work. You both have good crystal balls, uh, as you have to be as an analyst, uh, but maybe a, a well, we can all three chime in on what do you think cognitive search will look like in two years or in five years? What's what's your take on where IBM and Microsoft in particular are are going in that sort of time horizon? And I'll start with Hadley and then, then Sue, and I'll, I'll chime in if I have any additional insights. 
the impact that Google is going to have, I think, will not be as strong um, potentially as the impact that Microsoft will have, simply because of the sort of enterprise legacy um, associated with Microsoft and its customer base. The, uh, we will see, as we've been saying, the acceleration of um, machine learning-oriented features within uh, search systems, and I think in particular, a re-engineering of the UI away from the search box and toward more almost predictive answering systems, so to speak, uh, systems that are more suggestive, more like recommendation engines than, you know, that you might find at a Amazon or something than, um, than the traditional search box where the user is uh, kind of stuck in this stateless, uh, repetitive, iterative set of uh, interactions with the machine who, who doesn't remember what you asked it a minute ago. The other question that's out is um, whether companies will be acquiring their search technology through search technology developers and vendors um, the way they have traditionally basically done, um, buying from companies like IBM and Microsoft and Oracle and so forth, or whether they, with a sort of a broadening of um, skills in the cognitive area and the readily availability of these portfolios of APIs, whether, um, oh, and I should say a shift in the priorities of uh, CEOs in, in big companies to digital transformation for their businesses, whether businesses will uh, shift back to more of a roll-your-own roll approach to the cognitive applications they build because, uh, you know, no one knows the specificities of their applications as well as they do. Uh, Sue, how about you? What's your what's your prediction about what the space will look like going forward and what the players will look like? It's a really interesting question. It's quite possible we're going to see quite a sea change. And that's what I'm guessing is going to happen, but it could just be because I find it so interesting. So the first thing is that we haven't talked about what I consider to be one of the major elements, and that's design, Jeff. The interaction design uh, and I think that that will become paramount in the set of skills that are necessary to build apps. So the first thing I want to say is that apps, not technology, are where this whole space is going to go. The underlying technology may uh, settle down to a few platforms, uh, but that's not what people will think about. And consider the fact that Siri and Alexa are not at, uh, are not technologies. They're a set of technologies. And, and that's what we interact with. So the fact that somebody, many somebody, spent a long time putting them together and that they had to integrate those technologies is, is of course, the reason that they're popular. But the fact is we have to do this for cus customers, for consumers, for consumer apps, and especially for the enterprise. So what do I think might happen. I do think there will be multiple platforms because so much is now open source. But it's quite possible that the ecosystems around those platforms uh, will become ever more important. I could be wrong about that, but I do think that the applications are what we need to look at and what will be bought. So in the enterprise, these applications will be task or process-based, not technology-based. All of the integration of the technologies will be hidden. So we aren't going to have to do the, the old sneaker net approach of walking 
information from one application to another in order to use it, to process it, to understand it, and to output it. The process frames the design. It gives it the context that we need to design well. But you have to have some very smart people who understand other people and how they want to interact with technology in order to pull this off. And I think that means that a new generation of developers is going to have to develop people skills that they've been avoiding for a very long time. Sorry about that, developers. Well, I noticed that you've got Pete already looking up online classes in interaction <laughs> design. I, I really okay, let, feel... let's not try to predict my future too quickly. <laughs> but with the, in the enterprise, as a, as a first step, these cognitive applications are less daunting in the enterprise than they are in the broad world of the consumer. Because, let's think about it, we have a specific domain and terminology that is known. We have known processes and we have known goals. And those can be used to develop very, very usable applications that are fast to launch. And I know you've been playing around with several of these, Jeff, because we just talked about it yesterday um, at BA Insight. And it's the fact that you have a limited set of goals that you don't have the whole world to satisfy that makes it possible to cobble together these things very fast to explore them, to perhaps rip out what did, doesn't work, and to keep on exploring. And I think that's what's going on right now. I see an awful lot of proof of concepts and exploration happening. Jeff is now a good. That, that's a fantastic segue. Jeff is now a good time to talk a little bit about why BA Insight is in the consortium and the kinds of things you're up to. Sure, I think it's very simple. I, I I view my personal participation in the consortium as, as sort of a service role. I I definitely believe that there's a, a very strong role for the consortium, and I think as a as a company, as I already mentioned, having an independent group without as as much baggage as the major analyst firms have. Frankly, I mean, they they analyst firms are a business that have a particular business model. So I think this being a practitioner forum and working group is extremely valuable. As we start to get deeper into this space, I think uh, it's, it's, it's valuable to have both sounding boards and, and calibration. Uh, I agree with what both Sue and Hadley said about the future. I think that the basics will still be important. People will still need to connect to data that's living in multiple places. They'll need to add some structure to their app and uh, the sort of arms race and hopefully our building block approach will make it easy to assemble and experiment quickly, but there'll be domain and task specific apps rather than trying to do everything for everybody. The, the, the consortium, as it gains some uh, momentum and, and steam, is a place to stay in touch with. And I'd certainly suggest to listeners that are interested in this area that they check out the consortium. I think, uh, Hadley, you've got a conference coming up this year. Isn't that true? We do indeed, Jeff. It'll be in December in Boston, um, and it'll be um, a conjoint conference with um, a, a much bigger effort called AI World. And um, so we'll be uh, publicizing specific information about that, but uh, consortium members will have a not only their own track on a given day, but um, they'll also have 
some advantages relative to um, registering for the larger event. Very good. So watch this space, check out the consortium, and stay tuned for more about how uh, B Insight is is playing in it. I know I joke, Sue, that you're that the answer machine is already here, and the next step is the advice machine. So what what's your advice to people about how to absorb and approach all these changes in a fascinating and yet still forming space? Well, the things that we're thinking about today, Jeff, um, and you put your finger on one of them, uh, are the hard underpinnings. So certainly I said design is paramount in terms of selling the applications to users and to and buyers of technology. But one of the hardest things is how do you wire it up, especially how do you get the data to be normalized enough so that you can use them. And this was true with Watson. It's true today. It's one of the huge barriers to putting together a cognitive application. Um, people are working at it, but it's very hard with language and then even beyond that with images to uh, be able to have a, a machine understand that customer and client and, and ID number 5362 are all the same entity. That's the hard work. And we're, I don't think there's been one recipe that has one uh, beyond the other. The other things we're, we're concerned about um, and are watching are guidelines for what kind of cognitive application you're looking for because there are a series of trade-offs and decisions to be made. And we're hoping that we will be able to help people, that's what our current research is, um, choose what kind of application they need, and then to help them choose the technology, the data, the data connectors, uh, the interaction design uh, that is appropriate to that particular application. The third thing that we are looking at is, is issues. And, you, you know, the technology is far beyond the human ability to understand the ethics of self-driving cars, of um, hacked political systems of various kinds, uh, decisions that have life or death um, consequences, um, ideas of beauty. All of these things are very human and are not conducive to machine judgments. So what do we do about that? So, you know, I love this because I'm an analyst and I don't have to answer the question. I just have to ask it. But boy, those are hard questions. Fascinating. Well, I, I look forward to many more conversations and uh if if you'll willing to come back having you back here because i could tell that we could we could talk for a long time okay. yeah that'd be great jeff very rich conversation thank you both and and you know sue you've given me hope if there's a computer that can tell me i'm gaining weight then there's certainly got to be a cognitive solution to losing weight and so I, <laughs> without a diet right <laughs> right right that's that's what i need to that's what i need to have happen thank you so much sue feldman and hadley reynolds at the cognitive computing consortium for joining us on the show today uh, you thank you so much for your time and attention everybody who is downloading this show uh, and listening remember we certainly Certainly appreciate those five-star reviews and Apple Podcasts if you are so inclined. If you appreciate what you've heard from uh, Jeff and Sue and Hadley today, uh, those five-star reviews help other people who are interested in cognitive computing and search to find out more 
from this podcast. On behalf of Sue Hadley and Jeff, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next week right here on Shared Insights, the podcast from BA Insight.